What a great hymn of faith. You can sing that one for me when you're saying farewell and rejoicing that I'm in heaven someday. That's one of my very favorites. I'd ask that the sound man just give me a little boost on the volume this morning. I'm not quite comfortable with where I am here. I'm asking you to follow as we look to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9. We're moving along through this gospel of Matthew, and I'm going to read the first eight verses as we consider this passage of another healing from Jesus, but one with quite a difference about it. You can easily see what that difference is. Listen to God's Word, Matthew 9, beginning at verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat and crossed over and came to his own town. That was Capernaum, by the way. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. And they praised God who had given such authority to men. This is the Word of God. For at least the last ten years, America has become part of what I call the designer water culture. Perhaps you're part of this uh, phenomenon as thousands of people now carry a bottle of water with them almost Anywhere they go, everyone has their favorite brand, and they sip from it all day long. We're told that it's good for you to do this, to hydrate yourself this way, and it's good for general health. I've been interested to watch some of the documentaries about the subject, and there are indeed waters that people enjoy drinking that are from glaciers and mountain springs, and there are also are those with glaciers and mountain springs on the label that come out of the tap of the city water system. You better find out where yours is coming from. But until this phenomenon spread, there were many people, I think, who rather were either rather ignorant or just didn't think about how essential water is to our lives. The scientists tell us that a person in generally good health could live as long as six weeks, perhaps even a little more, without ingesting food. You would be wasted away, but you could survive that long. But if your body does not have water at all, you would die in about a week, ten days perhaps at the most. Well, our subject is forgiveness today. And I want you to understand that spiritually we need forgiveness to hydrate our souls as urgently as our bodies 
need water. There is nothing in one sense more foreign to the human sinful nature than real forgiveness. It's something we definitely want for ourselves, but we have a hard time giving it away to another person. But there's also nothing that is more central to the very essence of God's divine grace and His work in Jesus Christ. Many fallen people who don't know the gospel find God's forgiveness a very hard thing to understand. I'm thinking of a certain woman I've encountered years ago in my ministry. She was so emotionally traumatized when I first knew her that in her own eyes, she saw only a totally worthless object. She had never experienced any real love from a father in her home, so she had a hard time understanding a heavenly father. Then her husband had rejected her too, and a lot of illness had been in her life. And she couldn't accept the idea that she was worth something to God or that God would deal with her any differently than just as a worthless, insignificant person. She had heard a little about Christianity, but unfortunately only the legal brand of Christianity, which told her that if she would have any favor with God, it would somehow have to be sort of purchased or earned by her behavior. And she knew she had no spiritual currency with which to do that. It took a lot of time and counsel and patient biblical teaching before she finally began to grasp hold of the idea that she had a heavenly Father who would forgive her, restore her, and regard her as the apple of His eye, as indeed a father would do for a beloved child. People uninstructed in the Bible sometimes tend to think that forgiveness ought to be the easy thing for God to do. Their reasoning says, look, He's the Almighty One. Why could He not simply choose to overlook our faults and and wave them off, excusing us from any consequences? After all, He's the greatest nice person that ever was. But of course, that builds on a very deficient idea and view of God. God, the biblical God, cannot simply acquit transgressors by waiving their debt or ignoring it. Because the Scripture teaches He is holy and He is just. And because of these attributes, forgiveness is really the hardest thing God ever provides. He provides it only at great cost to Himself. Now, let me mention, as I have, as we've been studying Matthew here these recent weeks, especially in chapters 8 and 9, that this gospel of Matthew is, on the one hand, chronologically arranged. The events occurred, apparently, in a timeline, while, of course, the Holy Spirit led the gospel authors to choose certain events. They didn't tell everything that happened every day of Jesus' life. John even alludes to that at the end of his gospel and says the whole world wouldn't have been able to contain the collection. 
But in their chronology and a time sense, there's also a topical ordering to things as Matthew moves through. And there's a thread running through that we have marked in these last couple of weeks, the thread of the authority of Jesus and how unique that authority was. It was authority first as the teacher of God's law, as in the Sermon on the Mount, he told them the true meaning of what God's law was all about, and at the end they were stunned by his authority. It's authority to work healings, we saw at the beginning of chapter 8. Authority to work a miracle of nature, we saw in the calming of the storm. And while I'm not treating it separately, I'd point you to the end of chapter 8 where his authority rises to another level. Authority to stand toe-to-toe with Satan, the prince of this world, and cast out those who work for him. Now I suggest to you, along with many commentators, that the issue of authority is rising to a climax as Matthew 9, 1 through 8, tells us of Jesus' authority to do the ultimate thing greater than what we've seen up until now. Authority even to forgive sins. The incident we're looking at here is told in a very brief form by Matthew. But you may not have realized it is an incident you know from two other Gospels. Both Mark and Luke tell it and add some more color and detail. This, you see, is the healing of the man brought on a litter by his friends to the roof of a house in Capernaum where a hole, they tell, in Mark and Luke was made in the roof because the crowd was so great they could not get access any other way that they let the man down into the presence of Jesus. And it says he saw their faith. In fact, as you read Matthew, you might wonder what's being alluded to when it says he saw their faith. The joint faith of the sick man and those who brought him was what he was so pleased with. But Matthew doesn't tell us all that that detail. Why? Well, we have to suppose that it's because his main interest was in this dialogue about forgiveness that was going on here. More important, really, than the particular details of the healing itself. Forgiveness is the very core of everything God does in the life of anyone who believes in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is the locomotive that pulls the train of divine salvation. I remember hearing a youth pastor preach at a, I believe it was a presbytery meeting quite a few years ago, and I think he must have been using some material that he thought was good for youth, but he said, forgiveness is the cream filling in the hostess Twinkie. While I wouldn't have chosen his image, I think he made his point rather well. Forgiveness is the main thing. Forgiveness tells us of an immediate and total life pardon for every debt that our rebel nature incurs against the God of heaven. Forgiveness, in God's version, was transacted at Calvary by God the Father and God the Son for all those who put their trust in His wonderful name. The first thing this morning as we explore Matthew 9, I want to tell you is this. It comes through very clearly from this miracle, this healing. The lesson that physical healing is not mankind's greatest need. 
physical healing is not mankind's greatest need. It helps you as a background issue to know, as you think about this passage of Scripture, that in first century Judaism, it was a very common assumption, and it's common actually many places since then, that all sickness or disability was in some way caused by the personal sin, the individual sin of the person who was ill. Job's friends, you know, made that assumption, didn't they? They came to Job. They said in so many ways they were slightly different in their approaches, but there was a commonality. They said, look, Job, you're suffering. Your suffering is enormous. It's huge. We've never heard of anybody having to deal with so much as you did. Now, Job, here's the conclusion. You've sinned or you wouldn't be suffering this way. So fess up and all will be well. Well, I need to help you be very clear on this. The Bible does not support the idea that every illness, every malady, every tragedy, every disability in this life is dumped on you as a direct divine punishment. That simply is not supported by Scripture. And yet it is amazing how many people still hold this idea and even thrash themselves with it and cause untold harm to themselves and others. Now, of course, you can suffer. You may be sick. You may suffer a tragedy by making bad or reckless or sinful decisions. That, of course, is true. But it's wrong to generalize and say, when there's this kind of difficulty in your life, it must be traceable to something particular in your sin. That's wrong. Two weeks ago, we talked about the general understanding of the consequences of death entering God's good creation. And along with death, not only spiritual death, but physical death, came like a flow of sewage spilling over from a plant. Every kind of harm and wrong and brokenness that humanity can think about. Yes, in a sense, disease has a broad, far-reaching link in a cosmic way to sin. But that's more of a general issue than it is an immediate one-to-one relationship to each life and each sin and each tragedy. But Jesus, I think, knew that folks present there were thinking this way. They saw the paralyzed man. They, some of them in their mind right away said, aha, a real sinner, or he wouldn't be paralyzed like this. And so the Lord was using the assumptions even of twisted, unbiblical theology as a starting place because he knew that nobody would be surprised to hear the idea that perhaps this man needed forgiveness. Earlier in the service, we heard the words of Psalm 32, 1 and following, when David considered how his double sin of adultery and murder had been covered up and and by himself sort of buried under the surface for a while, not confessing it to God, not recognizing it. And he said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. David was recognizing that spiritually, when something was spiritually wrong, yes, his physical body even suffered as a result. There's a wonderful quote in the work of novelist Nathaniel Hawthorne, in his great book, The Scarlet Letter, which I still consider to be the great American novel. 
The character Dr. Roger Chillingworth is a medical doctor who knows that the minister Dimsdale is guilty of a sin that isn't out in the open. And Chillingworth, taunting him, says to him at one occasion, he to whom only the outward physical evil is laid open knows but half the evil he is called upon to cure. A bodily disease may be, but a symptom of some ailment in the spiritual part. Certainly, when sin is not confessed, there can be physical results. Now, Jesus here pronounces to this man and and just throws everybody, people present as well as everybody since, off their guard when he says to this man laying on the mat, unable to walk, unable to stand up, unable probably to even feel his legs, my son, your sins are forgiven. And everybody wants to rush in and say, no, 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 wait a minute, Jesus, you're addressing the wrong need. If you went to a medical office tomorrow or or Wednesday and, and the presenting problem that took you there was great pain in your knees, you wouldn't expect or want the doctor to say, well, now sit down, let me give you an eye exam, and then I'll listen to your lungs. You'd say, no, no, wait a minute, doctor. The the problem is knees. And here's Jesus saying, the problem is sins. But he's not echoing the idea that this man is a particular sinner in any greater way than any other individual. What he's addressing is the fact that there's been one of these litters after another in a procession going by him, and he has spoken words and prayed and pronounced and cast out demons and and cured the leper and so on. And he's concerned that although these are valid tokens of his divine authority and power, people may not be getting the right lesson. They may think that the errand of the Son of Man in the world is simply to eradicate as much sickness as he could possibly lay his hands upon. And that would be wrong. Absolutely wrong. Jesus knew in Matthew 9 that it was time to show people what the true crisis was. The true crisis was what was wrong in the soul. His healing miracles were outward tokens to signify his power to do the far greater healing that each man and woman desperately needs in our broken and shattered souls. After all, our relationship to the living God is the most primary relationship we have. And if the Scripture is right in telling us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that primary relationship is in a broken state, then seeing that relationship mended certainly is the primary thing. Not restoring my my hurt foot or my leprosy or anything else. If we can put back into a right standing, our relation with God, that certainly has to be primary. And you see, Jesus Christ did not trifle with always dealing with mere surface symptoms of the body. Instead, his scalpel cut straight to the source, which was a deeply embedded tumor of human unrighteousness, a rebellion against God. Physical healing is never, I don't care if you're at your deathbed, it is never 
the greatest thing that you need. Your soul set right with the pardon of God is your greatest need. Our truest misery will be cured only when someone operates at the level where the, minis- where the, the misery originates. And that's not the body. That's in the spiritual part of us. Physical healing is not man's greatest need, was a message of this text. In the second place, Matthew 9 shows us this. Forgiveness must begin with God. Now, in this version of the incident, another thing that Matthew does not include besides the opening in the roof is words that are found in Mark 2.7 and Luke 5.21. The skeptics that were standing near said something that was very true when they were bridling about him as a blasphemer. They asked a question, and here's the question. They said, who can forgive sins but God alone? One of the things I love about the Bible is irony. What delicious irony stated here. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, you got it right, fellas. You may be the opening salvo in skepticism shown in the Gospel of Matthew, a skepticism that will rise in its intensity until it goes all the way to the cross. But this skepticism is right. Only God can forgive sin. What was the problem? They didn't know that God was standing before them. And once more, I refer to King David to illustrate the point here. In the 51st Psalm, if you put that alongside the 32nd, where he said he had not confessed his sin and his body groaned, In the 51st, he does confess that same sin of killing a husband and taking the wife. And in Psalm 51.4 is that great statement, which is a cry of pain out of David's heart, wrung out of him as he says, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is wrong in your sight. Now, we want to protest again. We say, wait a minute, David. Haven't you forgotten something? Your eye is dead. Bathsheba is wronged. An infamous example has been set before your kingdom and will echo all over the place wherever your name is spoken. How can you say against God only? There are so many other people affected. But you see, the teaching of the Scripture is that however grievous any sin may be in its effect on other sinners... Really, in the eternal sense, that's just collateral damage compared to the unbelievable assault that has been made upon the holy God. Thus, our sin is like a knot that only God can untie. Maybe you remember from English class way back there someplace studying some of the Greek legends, Greek mythology, you might remember Sisyphus. Sisyphus was the character who was condemned to push a a huge boulder up a mountain. Oh, he pushed and he groaned and he labored. And yes, the boulder moved and it would go up slightly and he would work a little more and it would go up slightly more. But every time Sisyphus gained about five feet moving the boulder, it slipped and went back down ten feet. 
And that was his constant procedure. He could never make overall progress getting that boulder up the hill. His task was impossible. And his situation was exactly like a mere human being trying to mend the fundamentally broken relationship between himself and God. Push the boulder, push the boulder. Oh, yes, you'll see some moral movement. But when the boulder comes back, it'll come back down farther than you pushed it up. Forgiveness must begin with God because it is God who is fatally offended and nothing short of a royal pardon from the king of heaven sealed with his own official seal will undo the damage. The Bible's awesome. God makes this wonderful claim in Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins anymore. Forgiveness is divine work. It's not human accomplishment. I love it when Jesus said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Every word is significant in Scripture. The plural of sins is there because he meant every wrong the man had ever done or would do in a lifetime. And the present tense, are, is used because the action was in effect the moment it was announced. You see how wonderful is the forgiveness that God does? Psalm 103 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Travel around the world as fast as you can go, and you will never catch up to the place where he has deposited your transgressions. Isaiah 118 says, Though your sins be like scarlet, or though they are the deepest dyed stain you can imagine, they shall be as white as wool. The vast extent and the great effectiveness of divine forgiveness is both instant and eternal. There's nothing tentative about it, nothing conditional in the absolution of God. If he has, it can be imagined to have the task of Sisyphus, he takes the boulder, rolls it to the top of the hill, and thrusts it out of sight forever after. After all, what is forgiveness? At the heart of the matter, it means the outflow of love from a person who has been wronged towards the very person who committed the wrong. How does God do that? How does a just God, a holy God, who cannot simply wave it off, do that? Well, in one sense, it's the greatest problem ever imagined, but in another sense, the Scripture states the solution to how he does it in a single sentence in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. In my opinion, that's a more important Scripture verse for you to memorize than John 3.16. It's absolutely central to the driving engine of what God does in salvation. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us 
so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus fulfilling the prediction of Psalm 85.10, which said this, that one day loving kindness and truth would meet together. Righteousness and peace would kiss each other. And that happened in the horror of the cross. The wrath of God was satisfied. The wondrous claim of Romans 3.26 was fulfilled, that God could be both just and the one who justifies. And so do you see how Jesus used this healing incident to talk about something so much more important than just standing up on your legs? He asked the skeptics, which thing is easier to say? Not to do, but to say. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? He didn't answer the riddle. He just posed it. Well, it seemed easy to talk about sins being forgiven. Why? Because you couldn't prove it. You know, you could say your sins are forgiven, but how do you prove that they're forgiven? Well, Jesus said, I know you're interested in proof, and you think the harder thing is for a paralyzed man to, to stand up and walk. So I'll do that. Since you want proof, I'll do what you think is the harder thing, which, by the way, is actually the incidental easy thing, and I'll say, son, take your bed and go walk, and you'll know that I have the power from the living God to do the really hard thing, to cleanse you on the inside and make you whole and make you run before the presence of God, not cower in shame. Forgiveness begins and ends with God. And so we conclude and see that the whole New Testament brings us this message that Jesus could be called the forgiveness man. Jesus can be called Forgiveness Incorporated. Our text in Matthew 9, 8 concludes it this way. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. And they gave praise to God that he had given such authority to men. Yes, he gave to the Son of Man, one man, Jesus Christ, the authority to work out forgiveness. But he gave to all men and women who will trust in him the benefit of that. The benefit of forgiveness granted freely because the blood of Jesus Christ becomes the engine that drives Christianity forward. Two weeks ago, we noticed in Matthew 8, 17, that declaration about Jesus on the cross, quoting from Isaiah, where it says he took up our sins and carried away our diseases. And, oh, we have endless debates. Some people have anyway. Is there healing in the atonement? And what they mean by that question is, since Jesus died and carried away sin and disease, can I name and claim my cure anytime I want to or anytime I bring the right kind of faith to God? It's a foolish discussion. Of course there is healing in the atonement. We believers are guaranteed resurrection bodies free of defects, disease, weakness, perfect bodies one day. The key is one day. The fulfillment of that promise awaits the second coming of Christ. 
and the resurrection of the dead and the glorification of the saved into those new bodies. It's a promise. It's sure. It's already paid for, but it's not yet fully bestowed. There is healing in the atonement. There's healing of the best kind. Let's not trivialize the atonement by talking about silly name it and claim it promises that maybe I just haven't gotten my faith perfected enough to claim the healing that God surely guarantees me now. He doesn't guarantee it now. Yes, he can heal. Yes, he does heal. But he doesn't guarantee that your physical body will be healed. But he has beyond any doubt bestowed on everyone who believes the great healing. The healing that counts. The premier healing of a soul made clean and righteous with the perfection of Christ himself. Ephesians 1.7 can be our final word this morning. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. That is what you need. More than you need food, or water, or healing from physical ailments, or anything else. And you can take it as God's free gift in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that your son didn't mistake his mission. That he didn't spend it establishing a secondary thing for humanity. But that he went right to do the primary thing. That he brought for us the great gift that we need. Oh, Father, how foolish we've been. How we've trivialized our lives and even our prayers away. Groaning over our physical state. When we might have been rejoicing in our liberation from sin and death in Jesus Christ. Teach us properly to pray, to live, and to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.